Welcome, welcome, my friends, to the Beggars and Brawlers podcast. This is episode 50, recorded Friday, the 8th of July, 2022, as I sit in, you guessed it, a truck stop in Dickinson, North Dakota, on a rainy, rainy Friday. And this week, I've got another preview for you of our upcoming Tide Collar prequel novella, Thief of Smoke and Sorrow, plus a little behind the scenes on how I recorded this thing in a semi-truck. So, a little spoiler warning before we start, there is nothing in this story that will spoil you for the main series, but there is certainly things in this chapter, which is chapter number five, <laughs> that will spoil you for chapters one, two, three, and four. So if you haven't read them, they are in the podcast feed before this. Go and listen to them first, and then come on back and listen to this one. So here it comes. Five. I don't go back to the cave. Partially because I don't have what I need there. The powders and poisons and hidden knives I locked away in my first hideout. I promised myself I'd never use them again, but I figure the witches broke their promise first. Still, my tools are only part of the reason. The rest is that I know, if I saw Awena, she'd tell me not to go. I shake the loose sleeves of my robe out, feeling the weight of daggers tied inside. Thorn bark to slow on one, Saren root to kill on the other. She'd probably be right. Breaking into the monk's temple is madness. The witches don't even try it anymore. I turn onto the path of insight, the ancient pavestones that climb through old Saray to the temple on the cliffs. After everything the stainer said about the book and why a witch would be working with the monks, I should probably just admit this is over my head and focus on lying low. Focus on surviving and getting Awena out of here. But all these probablys? They don't mean scabs compared to the one thing I do know. Some witch called my blood after three years of nothing, which means she can do it again, and that one fact is a hammer in the glassworks of my heart, shattering the hope I was finally free. I follow the path past the last mansions, into the cultured seagrass garden surrounding the temple's high walls. Those shattered pieces cut me with every step, and every place they cut, I bleed the truth. I still belong to the witches, body and soul, a tool they can pick up any time they want, unless I use it for some smashing of my own. The walls loom up, pale in the fog that creeps in from the bay every night. Overseers stand above the gates to either side, and more patrol the walls. They are trained from childhood to react at the slightest sound, to use the human body to the limits of its capabilities, and to weaponize the monks' ability to read minds in combat. They're one of the reasons Saray is so safe, and why I'm so careful on my thefts. There's no way I could fight them openly and win. Fortunately, the witches didn't train me for open combat. They trained me to sneak and hide and kill in the quickest way possible. My trainers would still think approaching the gates is madness, but where their training left off, the streets took over. The streets and the stainer, teaching me the value of a good disguise. That was another reason I had to go back to my first hideout. To shave. I usually keep some stubble to hold a wig, but tonight I needed it shorn clean. Like a monk. I approached the gates head down, 
steps slow like a seer in his meditations, monk's robes pulled tight against the creeping chill of the night. This outfit cost me a pretty penny. It's illegal to impersonate a monk in Saray, but everything's for sale in the Blackwater, if you can afford it. I shuffle through the open gates, murmuring a thanks for monks arrogant enough to leave their gates open in the dead of night. Another sign they're winning the war. Maybe that's what this is all about, a witch who's heard hints of the power Narimes is seeking and wants to use it to shift the tides. If so, I bet Narimes would love to hear about it. And if not, if they are working together somehow, well, I have ways to make even a trained monk talk. My feet touch water, and tension rolls through me despite my training. This is one part of the disguise I couldn't imitate perfectly. The floors of the temple are all covered in a few inches of running water, and the monks walk in it barefoot, allowing each other access to their minds through their water sight meditations. If I were barefoot, they'd see through my disguise in a second, so I'm wearing oiled boots and relying on everyone to be too sleepy to notice. I don't expect it to get me to Narimes. This will get ugly sooner or later, and I have a plan for when it does. I pat the pouches of herbs tucked under my sash. I just hope it gets me close enough for my other plan to work. I pass through a marble arch and follow a hallway upstream. My informant called Narimes one of the leading monk politicians, so his chambers are going to be closer to the source of the water, following the temple's weird philosophy. I feel eyes on me after a few minutes and duck into an alcove on instinct. I catch a face vanishing under the marble edge of a window. A female face? There shouldn't be any women here. I wait and it doesn't reappear, so I keep moving through wide stone halls lit with moonlight and long, arched hallways echoing with the shush of running water. All it will take is one monk sounding the alarm in the water to wake the whole place, so I keep moving, trusting to luck and the floor plan I etched into my mind. I turn a corner to find names carved into polished doorways. Sewin, Tamil, Erte. Good. These are the higher theocrat quarters. I start to think I'm going to make it without... Boots? A voice comes from behind me. I spin, pouch of thornbark already clutched in my hand. What are you doing wearing... I crush the thin paper and blow, leaning into the shaven-headed face that approaches. His eyes widen at the cloud of gray powder, and then they go slack. I catch him as he falls. He'll be asleep till morning, and I'm about to lay him down when I realize he'll drown in this water. Cursing, I drag him to a wall and get his head propped safely. The witches would tell me to leave him, or better yet, take his blood and push him, but I'm not their tool anymore. No one needs to die for this, except whoever's responsible. Back to the hallway, faster now, scanning doors as I go. Even if he didn't have time to sound an alarm, it won't be long till someone finds him and starts asking questions. The weird thing is, all that water talk will be totally silent to me. Either way, I need to find Narimes fast. Once I'm in his chambers, I'll get his feet out of the water, and then we can chat. Yemlaw, Begdil, Sturgjohn. Something scrapes behind a door I'm passing, and I break into a trot, scanning carved names in the near darkness. A man steps out of a hallway ahead, and my gut clenches. Overseer. 
I duck behind a statue, sound obscured by the rush of water. If these boots really do keep them from hearing me in the water, I should be okay. I don't think he saw me. He turns in my direction, and before my belly can get any tighter, I practice the body sweep the witches taught me to defeat fear. I would pray he doesn't notice me if I still believed in Jaya, but no benevolent mother would let the witches do what they do. I pull up my sleeve instead. He steps past and I uncoil in a single motion, lashing out with an open palm. Something alerts him and he spins, but my bracelet still slams into him, spines jabbing through his monk's robes. He lands a punch that launches me across the hallway, but I roll off the brunt of it, coming up to find him clutching his shoulder, then dropping to his knees. I smile. The monks might be winning this war, but the witches have teeth too. Then I realize my robes are wet, which means my thoughts probably showed up in the water, if anyone was listening. And if they weren't, the overseer is probably making sure they are now. I run. With any luck, I can still find Nerimes and vanish into his rooms. And if I can't, there's always my other plan. A door opens ahead and I dash down a side hall. No named rooms here, but I can always circle back. I come out into a training hall, oakwood staffs hung on one wall, wide windows letting in midnight fog. I could escape out those windows, but I'm not going back to a life of fear. I can handle this. Overseers step from the arched doorways to either end, staffs in hand. No time to hesitate. I run for the nearest one, palming a dagger with one hand and pulling the rope from my waist with the other. Stop! he shouts, dropping into a fearsome-looking stance with his staff raised high. I hurl the dagger. He knocks it out of the air, but that wasn't the point. While he's doing that, I whip the rope over his head at a far pillar. He strikes. I kick off the wall, climbing the rope sideways and sail over his head. I drop, wincing as I let go of the rope, they're expensive, and sprint down the corridor behind him. More men appear at the far end. Scabs. So much for stealth. Let's see if the other option works better. The overseers turn to me, blocking the narrow hall with staffs and the bulk of their bodies. I slow, dropping my second dagger in a show of surrender. My real attack starts once they take me in, and I talk to someone who matters. An upstart theocrat studying ancient magics to try to depose the current Chosen? And working with the witches besides? <laughs> I imagine the Chosen would forgive a lot to learn that. To read its true in my thoughts, using his powers. And if these overseers are loyal to Nerimes instead, well, he can't kill me without attracting a lot of attention. I bet the upstart monk would give even more to keep me quiet. Like the name of the witch he's working with. You, an overseer says, and I hear the one I leapt over approaching from behind. I calm myself again, using the body sweep. There's a tingling in my hands. Is this their water magic? You are trespassing on sacred grounds. Lay down your weapons and surrender. Already did, I say. I want to keep walking, but my steps slow, like I'm suddenly wading against a thigh-high current. Like a bad dream. Wait, I call, and the tongue goes numb in my mouth. I know this feeling. I have information for the Chosen. I... My voice cuts off, and I finally remember what this is. I try to scream, but my jaw doesn't work. The world goes blank. 
Blood Push. All right, so before the chapter started, I promised that I would tell you something about how I recorded this inside a semi truck. <laughs> so full disclosure, I did not record this while driving. I do do lots of audio stuff while I'm driving, but I'm certainly not going to be reading a thing and recording a thing and also operating a 40,000 pound piece of equipment at 130 kilometers per hour. So anyways, I hope that the sound quality of that chapter sounds good as opposed to how I sound right now, <laughs> which is hopefully decent. And uh, I know the first two preview episodes were pretty wretched because I was recording them with like a Bluetooth headset in an airport. But uh, hopefully this sounds better. Hopefully the chapter sounds really good. Um, you would not expect that if you saw where I recorded it from. <laughs> I actually uh, wrote a whole newsletter about this. Uh, with pictures, but since we don't have the luxury of pictures in a podcast, I'll just tell you about it. This whole idea of making an audio studio that's really portable was born of me dying to finish this story and also the novel that's a t that's tied to it, Rebel of Riddle and Woe, and not getting the time before the fruit season started. I just had a really busy May, and the entire writing season this last time was short. I did not have the hours or the days that I'm used to. So I didn't get I didn't get the book done, didn't get the novella done, and it kind of killed me. So I was like really thinking, how can I finish this even after I go on the road? And the last, you know, and, you know, like I can find an hour here and there to edit or revise or do those kinds of things. But my last stage, my final proofread is to narrate the thing for an audiobook because when you're performing something out loud and trying to imbue every sentence with feeling and whatever, you notice every error because your your tongue skips over it. So I knew that I needed to do that in order to get this audiobook out to you and in order to really finish up the text so that I could make an ebook out of it. And uh, same with Rebel of Riddle and Woe, which meant that I either needed to find a studio somewhere that I could rent space from, which is super tricky because I'm in a different town pretty much every day all summer because of the fruit gig, or I needed to make a way to have a studio in my semi truck, which sound <laughs> if it sounds ludicrous... That's because it is. So anyway, the first iteration of that had me using the sound blankets that I use at home. I kind of like took my setup at home, which is a frame hanging from the ceiling that has sound blankets hanging around it inside an already well insulated building to kind of double insulate. And then inside there, my voice doesn't bounce around. So it sounds close, but uh, there isn't any kind of echo. And I thought I could just translate that to the inside of my semi-trailer because, after all, it's an insulated trailer. It's refrigerated to carry fruit. And when it's empty and I close the doors, you know, hopefully that insulates from the sound fairly well. And then I would make my second bubble inside there with the blankets hanging all around. And voila, I've got an audio studio, right? So I have my aunt sew these special attachments onto my expensive sound blankets. And I, like, drill holes in the ceiling of my semi-truck so that I can hang the blankets from the roof and make this frame out of wooden dowels that's collapsible and do all this shit. And then when I finally take it for a trial run, I find that, yes, indeed, it does insulate from exterior noise very well, but it does not insulate from the noise of my own voice echoing inside that big, empty semi-trailer. And it kind of killed me. But after listening to my test recordings, I was like, yeah, I, I can't do this. There's no way that it's passing Audible's QC or the other uh, quality control things that my book has to go through to become an actual audiobook that's for sale on the Internet. So I gave up on it, and then the author part of me that is determined to get these books done did not give up on that, and so it said, okay, we need a round two. So the round two 
And I swear, this is a pattern in my life that I first, I have a thing that I want and I come up with a solution and it's a lot of work and it's complicated, but I'm like, whatever, it's worth it. I do the hard work. I go through the complications. At the end, I'm like, you know what I could have just done instead? And there's like a much simpler solution. And sometimes it's too late. Like when I built a deck on the back of my house from scratch and realized that I could easily have just uh, added a few bells and whistles to the bones that were already there and saved myself like you know, weeks of labor. (laughs) Uh, Same with this studio. I built that whole thing in my trailer, found that it was insufficient, and then realized if I just took one of those blankets and hung it in a particular way inside my semi-cab, so my truck is a sleeper cab, which means that it's got the two seats up front, but the back has actually bunk beds. I'm sitting on the bottom one right now, (laughs) and and the walls are padded because it's designed for two people to drive a truck basically nonstop, what they call tandem driving. So one person drives and the other person has their off hours while they're on the road. They're just not driving. And so one of the things they need to do during that time is sleep. So there is a bed here that has like a, it's kind of crazy, but it's like a seat belt net. It attaches in three places and you can lay down in the bed and be DOT legal while you're sleeping and you've got this like seatbelt net thing over you. Um, and another part of that safety is that the walls are padded. They're um, sort of an insane asylum pads. They're cushiony. You cannot hurt yourself against them. And the upshot of that is they also cushion against noise and echo pretty well. So I obviously didn't think of that when I was working on Portable Sound Studio Iteration 1. But in my desperation for iteration two, I was like, okay, I could do that. And the benefit of it is that I can still use that studio even when I've got fruit on because the <laughs> if you want to talk about noise, the cooler that keeps my fruit cool in that trailer is wickedly loud and there's like an awful wind blowing at all times that's 30 degrees. I do not want to be there when I have fruit on. So in my semi-cab, uh, I can always just unhook the trailer and pull away somewhere and record things if I need to have a good recording. So it's a lot more flexible, and after I hung up that blanket and got it all just right and sort of like, I already had a very strange stand for my microphone because my microphone's on a boom, and anyways, I won't get into the details, but I adapted some of that stuff, tried it out in the semi-cab, and it actually worked really well. At least, I think it worked well. You have listened to, what, like four or five of the chapters now, and I hope that they sound really professional, that the recording is like high quality but quiet. That's what I'm going for. There's, you know, I can't, the setup doesn't do anything for my actual narration abilities, which I admit may be subpar, but uh, hopefully the sound quality itself is pretty good. So um, that is where desperation led me, is to hanging a sound blanket and doing all this weird stuff, and it's like super dark, and I still, in this recording, had, uh, there would be semis that were leaving the rest area where I recorded most of it, and as they're accelerating, they go like, a bunch of times so I would have to stop in the recording because I knew that my setup wasn't good enough to muffle that so if you hear any of it just imagine that it's dragons flying through Alethea's skies and not uh, semi-trailers leaving a rest area somewhere in eastern Montana but (laughs) so that's the full story that is how I've recorded this audio novella for you uh, because I personally was desperate to just get it out of my brain and to get something real and finished out to you during the summer when I very rarely have anything to show for the fact that I'm an author. So I hope that um, the recording sounds good. I hope you're enjoying the story. Um, I think I'm going to give you just one more of these previews. I mean, we're getting a good way of the ways into the actual story. (laughs) So, um, and I am happy to announce that I actually have the full thing available. So if you're just listening to this podcast, there's two ways to do it. You can subscribe to the 
audio updates, which is like a thing I send out four times a year that just says, hey, I put out some new podcasts, hear what they're about, and there's links to go and listen to them. Or if you're already subscribed to that, you can just send me an email and I will send you a link to download the audio version of it, the full thing, without me talking before and after. <laughs> Speaking of which, I have blabbered long enough. I'm going to hit you with one more of these. In the meantime, I hope, as always, that this podcast finds you well and in the company of good books. Till next preview, read on. For more information on Levi Jacobs and his books, including the award-winning Tide Collar Chronicles, visit www.levijacobs.com. Or for a free audiobook, only available to podcast listeners, go to www.levijacobs.com slash free. Thanks for listening and read on.